Today's scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 17. But you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through His Spirit that dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If, a two-letter word, a word that holds promise, potential, likely some grief, but also God's power. We're continuing today in our If Sermon series. And last week, Pastor Rob shared with us the capstone verse of this series, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? The good news of the entire gospel is captured in this rhetorical question. If God, the creator of the entire universe, is for us, is for you, none can be against you, can be against us. And Paul, in his understanding, goes on in verses 38 and 39 to declare, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If God is for us, truly nothing can separate us from the perfect love of God. But mercy, won't we ever, as human beings, try to find and create things that will separate us from God's perfect love? Now, last week we learned that many of us, perhaps all of us, have if-only experiences in our life. If only I would have done this at that critical juncture. If only I had not done that. If only experiences or moments of sorrow or regret that remind us that pain and loss are still very real parts of our human experiences, despite God's perfect love for us, despite the fact that there's no condemnation, that God's for us, that nothing can separate us, despite all of that, pain and suffering and loss are still very real. And though it might be difficult for us to comprehend that both nothing can separate us from God's love and that, yes, we will still experience pain, perhaps it's difficult to comprehend those two things together. 
but it's really not a contradiction in our faith. In fact, Christianity is the only religion, though I'm almost certain Jesus was not trying to start a religion, Christianity is the only faith where we have a God who suffers along with God's people. Now, perhaps you think that makes God a weak God, or some might think that makes God weak, but the Christian narrative is one that tells us that that is God's perfect love and God's perfect power. In fact, it is the power that conquers death and that overcomes evil. If God is for us, none can be against. If only we could believe this. Today we're going to unpack another if statement. As if. In the 1960s, an elementary school in California administered an IQ test to all of its students. When the results came in, a handful of students from each classroom were categorized as poised to bloom academically. The teachers were notified which students were likely to um, be high achieving. And then the year went on with the teachers teaching and the students learning. At the end of that school year, students were again given the same IQ test that they had been given in the beginning of the year. And just as you would imagine, the students categorized as poised to bloom academically saw significant increases in their test scores. This was especially true for the youngest of learners. First grade uh, poised to bloom academically students had an upward increase of 27 points on the IQ test. But there was a catch. It turns out that the students in the likely to bloom academic category were actually chosen at random. They didn't have higher scores than the other students. And in fact, many students in this entire school came from immigrant families who were new to the country, new to the language, new to our educational systems, new to everything. In the decades that followed this experiment, the research was put to the test. Critics would argue against the deception involved. They would argue against the specific test that was administered. Some attempted to make this political. But at the end of the day, the research stuck. It's known as the Pygmalion effect or the Rosenthal effect. And it's named after the Harvard psychologist who designed the study. You see, it turns out that what we believe about another person, what we believe about a situation, affects how we act towards another person. And how we act towards another person affects that other person's beliefs about themselves, about what is capable, about their place in this world even, which then influences how the other person behaves and acts, which again in turn affects our own beliefs and that influences our own actions. It's a process that reinforces itself. It shows what beliefs put into action are capable of achieving. And it shows how our interactions impact others and theirs, ours, for better or for worse. You see, the teachers in this experiment acted as if the students were capable 
of achieving great things. And the students, in turn, respond it as if they knew they could. As if. Tim McCraw wrote a famous song several years ago, many years ago at this point, called Live Like You Are Dying. In the song, a guy in his early 40s receives a terminal diagnosis of sorts. After taking in this reality, the man decides that he is going to make the most out of the life he has left and to do all of the things he has always wanted to do. From being a better husband and a better father, to skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, to slowing down enough to watch an eagle as it was flying. Now you're probably familiar with this song. And if you are, my guess is that it's a song that makes you stop and pause and think about your own life. Are you living your life as if it's a gift? As if you are terminal? Are you living the life that God would intend you to live? in your relationships and how you use your time and your connections with others in the world around you. Now, the word words as if aren't exactly in the title of McGraw's song, but it's the same meaning here. Live as if you are dying. Though we are all obviously mortal and we will all face an earthly death at some point, we have become especially good in the West at denying this reality, at pushing it off, at pretending it's not there. But yet, we know that it's there. And when the reality begins to push closer to us, to a loved one, something changes inside of us. Oftentimes, that change is a new awareness of what life is actually about, what truly matters, and why it matters. A new awareness This is exactly the message that Paul is sharing in Romans chapter 8, a new awareness. Some theologians, in fact, believe that Romans chapter 8 is the best passage in the entire New Testament. Paul realizes, on one hand, that there is absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That means that we cannot be shamed into believing that we are worthless and that we are unforgiven and that our lives have no meaning. We can't because it's not true. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. And then Paul also realizes that nothing at all can separate us from the perfect love of God in Christ Jesus. He realizes that he is free, that we are free. And this sets him on fire for sharing this new awareness and this message Nothing can separate us. And then in verse 10, Paul tries to make sense of these things that are seemingly contradictory on the surface. Paul says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Christ's righteousness, that is. And then he goes on to explain that we are called to live in the spirit. Paul is making sense of this reality. And then attempting to tell us, tell the early church how to live, how to make sense of this. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever scripture talks about living in the spirit, I want more information. I want direction. I want graphs and a map. I want steps because this is confusing stuff. How do we live in the spirit? 
when we are clearly here in these bodies in the flesh? How do we do this? It's a paradox of sorts, a mystery even, because the only way that we can live in the spirit is through doing so in these bodies that are flesh. I don't know, have you figured out another way to live apart from um, the body that you're in? So we're living partly eternally with Christ and partly in decaying, dying flesh. Paul says that living in the flesh will lead us astray if we let it be in the driver's seat, but that there's another way. Does that mean that our bodies are bad? No, absolutely not. God created us in bodies. And in Genesis, he he was pleased with what he created. He calls it good. It means, rather, I believe, that there is another force at work trying to pull us away from believing that we are, in fact, who God says that we are. There's another force trying to get us to believe that there is condemnation and that things can separate us. You see, there's a God, a loving God, who creates for love, out of love, who gives you identity. There is you, a precious child of God, an heir. And there are the powers and principalities of this world that want nothing more than for you to forever believe that you are condemned, that you are worthless, that everything about you has, of course, separated you from God's love. There's truth and there's lies. There's love and there's destruction. There's God's ultimate redemptive purposes. And there is a world that is full of brokenness and violence and decay. There's eternity. And there's a terminal condition for the world. So what can we take away from this? The first thing I think we can take away is that we are invited to live as if you are God, you are who God says you are. Live as if you are who God says you are. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. You are a child of God, a child who has been chosen, who has been claimed, who has been adopted. You're an heir of God. You're an heir of Christ. Everything that is Christ's has been credited to you. Everything that is Christ's has been credited to you. So are you living as a child of God? If not, what is stopping you? Second, I think that we can take away that we are called to live as if you have been created in the image of God. Every single human being you will ever meet, you include it, you and everyone else you will ever cross paths with, those you love and those you can't even bring yourself to like, have been created in the image of God. The church sometimes can focus so much on the fact that humans are sinful creatures, which is true, though likely not in the shame-inducing way that it's often used. However, more importantly, Scripture tells us this chronologically, that before we were sinners, we were created in the image of God. So the first order is that we have been created in the image of God. Image bearers. 
we are invited to live as if that good truth about you is better than anything else. You're invited to live as if that good truth about your neighbor, about every person that walks this earth, is better than any other truth about them as well. Would someone who bears the image of God berate, shame, talk down to, judge, be violent towards, hurt, or destroy another person who bears the image of God? No, of course not. Violence and hate do not come from the image of God. We need to cling to the best truths about our identity, especially in seasons like the one we find ourselves in. We need to cling to the best truths about our neighbor's identity, about those we love and those we don't even like, all created in the image of God. And then finally, I think that we can learn that we are called to live as if the sin that remains in you is forgiven. Live as if the sin that remains in you is forgiven. All of that mumbo jumbo that Paul is speaking about in chapter 8 is essentially saying we cannot escape the fact that our flesh is sinful. It is bent towards sin. And yet we are called to live in the spirit. Yet we are we have been credited with Christ's righteousness. While in these bodies, we can't ignore this predicament that we are both sinners and saved. We can't ignore it, but we can claim victory. Live as if the sin that remains in you is forgiven. All of us, each and every one of us, and each and every person we will ever meet is simultaneously, at the same time, sinner and righteous. Right. At the same time, you and every person you will ever meet is holy and profane. All at once. There's a wonderful parable about the wheat and the tares and essentially tells us we can't pull those things apart. They coexist for this time being until Christ returns and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Simultaneously, sinner and righteousness, righteous. We know this. But of course, it's easier for us to sometimes focus on our shortcomings. Or in the season that we live in right now, it's easy for us to focus on our neighbor's shortcomings and mistakenly believe that we don't have any. But the gospel calls us to live as if the sin that remains in you and your neighbor is forgiven. Believe it, because it's true. 16th century theologian Martin Luther said it this way. His righteousness is yours, and your sin is his. Christ's righteousness has been credited to you, and he took from you the sin that is yours. He took from your neighbor the sin that is your neighbor's. If you don't believe these things are true, then you will never act like they are true, and therefore you will never live at all. You will remain in the flesh that talks about, that is dead, essentially. We are called to live as if the best things that God says about us are true. To believe them, to live into that hope and that promise and that potential. 
The world needs people who are alive in Christ, who know the beauty and the power of forgiveness and mercy and love and hope, who know what it means to suffer alongside hurting people, hurting people groups, who see the God who took the world's sin upon himself and who overcame the world through this truly unique way and desire to follow that kind of God, a God who draws close to suffering, a God who calls out the best in us, and a God who says, follow me and make disciples who follow me as well. Our gospel truth and our call to action today is one in the same. Live as if the best things that God says about you and your neighbor are true. And just like the students in the school IQ experiment, you might be surprised by the God potential in your life, in the life of your neighbor in the life of a seemingly hopeless, dark, desperate situation, <clears throat> you might, <clears throat> excuse me, you might be surprised at what God can do. Because if God is for you, who can be against? Live as if it's true. Holy God, we thank you for your promises. We thank you, Lord, for your love, for your mercy, for your forgiveness, and for the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to each and every one of us. Lord, help us to be a source of salt and light in this world. Help us to draw close to the suffering and the brokenness and the injustices around us while simultaneously clinging to your call and your hope and your love. Help us, Lord, to follow you as fully as we can in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. Lord, help us to live as if we belong to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>